Good morning, everyone. Father in heaven, thank you so much for another glorious day and a day of life. And um, we come together to study your word. And I pray that today you'll help give us wisdom, help us discern what is right and what is wrong. Um, give us uh, your spirit so that we can understand your character more fully today. And I pray especially for Mr. Barron. He's going through some tests. I pray that you'll give him healing if it's your will. And that you will, um, there are other people in our class as well that may be sick, sick of heart, sick of, um, sick physically. Pray that you'll give them healing as well. Be with us today in class and uh, speak through Dr. Jennings. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Today's lesson is the last lesson in our quarterly, Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And the title is, Here Am I, Send Me, the Prophet Isaiah. And I want to start with Wednesday's lesson. First question I want to ask, Prophet Isaiah had a message. How did the people respond to the message of Isaiah? What was their response? Rejected it. Okay, rejected it. Well, everybody kind of agree with that, that his message was not taken to heart, it was not applied, it was not accepted, it was rejected. Now, the next question then is, what was the message of Isaiah? And, and specifically, as we go through, I, I, I ask this question, what are the major points of the book of Isaiah? What do we learn if we only had the book of Isaiah as our entire Bible? What would we learn from the book of Isaiah? And I, I found eight major points that I wanted to go through, but what, what major points do you find in the book of Isaiah? And, and this class name should give you a big clue to the first major point. <laughs> yes, what's the first chapter of Isaiah about? Yes, but it, 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 says, it says in there, God berates the people for religion and rituals and symbolic practices without meaning. He's on them for feast days, Sabbath days, new moon festivals, burnt offerings, sacrifices, church attendance, uh, chapter 1, because they, he says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are a scar, they'll be white like snow, they'll be red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. So the first major point in the book of Isaiah where it starts out is religious observances, ritualistically done, uh, adhered to uh, fastidiously, are meaningless if you don't engage the mind to think. It doesn't do you any good, the rituals themselves. The purpose of them all was to get us to think, to get us to reason, to get us to comprehend. Any thoughts about that? Is that something we need to remember today as we go to church here in Collegedale? Yes. Amen. That we need to reason and we need to think. We need to stop accepting rhetoric. Anybody know what rhetoric means? Vain repetition. R rhetoric, words, empty, empty words. When Bill Clinton stood up before the nation and said, I did not have relations with that woman. That is words. That's rhetoric. That's not evidence. Monica brings forth the dress. She doesn't have to say anything. She says, please, take the dress and examine it. Evidence. That's evidence. You see, evidence is much more powerful than rhetoric. God is saying, on this war between Christ and Satan, how much evidence actually supports Satan's side of the argument? None. None. How much evidence supports God? All. All of it. So you understand God is begging us to reason, begging us to examine the evidence. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Satan only has sophisticated twists of logic and arguments and rhetoric and words and cunning and, and so forth and so on. He doesn't have any evidence. And he also has powerful speakers that can move people emotionally. Emotional movements, part of Satan's attacks without evidence. And we're seeing that happen. Are you seeing it happen? Yeah. So we want to be people who reason and think. Major point, Isaiah number one. Next major point that you all see in the book of Isaiah. Any thoughts? Chapter nine. Anybody remember something in chapter nine of Isaiah? Messiah. There you go. The Messiah. For unto us a child is born. His name shall be called? Wonderful. Wonderful. Counselor. Counselor. Mighty God. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Notice that. We have the promise that God himself is coming to earth to save us. So, reason things out. See the evidence of all these things. Get your mind thinking and realizing. And then recognize, hey, I'm coming to earth, guys. God is coming. And the God who's coming is? The Father. The Father and the Counselor. And the Prince of Peace. The whole Godhead is going to be summed up 
in this being who's coming to earth. And as one person said, that I really love the way it says, that Jesus Christ is God's thoughts made audible. Amen. God's thoughts made audible in the life of Jesus Christ, where you can hear and see what God is thinking. Now that's pretty cool. And that's what Jesus Christ is. And so the book of Isaiah, we've got, we've got a reason, you can't take rhetoric, we've got the Messiah's coming. And the Messiah is God himself, we're going to see him in living flesh. Next major point, five chapters later, Isaiah 14. Anybody know? Major point of Isaiah. You're going to find the book of Isaiah, you could actually just have the book of Isaiah. That's where it tells us the fall of Lucifer. Yes, the fall of Lucifer. So what is the fall of Lucifer? What, what insights do we learn in Isaiah 14 about Lucifer's fall that help inform us to understand what's going on in the problem of sin? Yes. Well, he, his desire was to go up. And I also find that particular chapter really interesting in that finally not only will we be able to see God, but we'll also be able to see Satan. And this chapter talks about what what Satan really is. Is this the man that made the earth tremble? The man who destroyed his world and would not let his captives go free? You mean it's not God who's the destroyer in this chapter? Notice, notice the point here that, that Satan is the one who destroys, not God. It's very interesting. But doesn't Isaiah 14 show us that something's going on bigger than sin on this planet? Yes. Doesn't Isaiah 14 draw attention to something that's going on out in the universe, not just on this planet? Doesn't Isaiah 14 give us insight that sin didn't start with Adam and Eve? In other words, the great controversy is talked about in Isaiah. The big picture. Satan started the rebellion with an, uh, the rebellion started with an angelic being named Lucifer, the bright morning star. And what was the issue over? Does the Bible tell us in Isaiah 14 what the issue was over? The central issue in this controversy, does Isaiah 14 tell us? It tells us what he did. I will ascend top. I will ascend higher. I will go to the Mount of the North. I will go to the Mount of the Assembly. I will set my throne above the utmost heights. And then it says, I will. I will be like the Most High. Now, is that how the Most High is? No. Is the Most High a being who promotes himself, exalts himself, puts himself up above others? Or do we read in Philippians about Christ? He did not think equality with God was something to be grasped but humbled himself, coming in the form of a servant, even humbling himself to the cross. Now, do we get a different picture of the divine character in Christ than we get from Lucifer? So when Lucifer says, I will be like God, was he actually pursuing the path that God pursues? So is there a misunderstanding about God there? Yes. Yes, notice the core issue in the controversy starts over a misunderstanding God. Something else to notice in these paragraphs, these chapter, chapter 14, if you actually count out, you will find that Lucifer takes six ascending steps upward. I will ascend. I will promote. I will rise. I will be like the Most High. Six steps. You'll see the six eyes. And then the next thing that happens in the, in the verse is, but you will be brought low. You'll be cast down. So six upward movement, cast down. Philippians uh, chapter 2, when Jesus says he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself, you'll find six downward steps that he humbles himself, six downward steps. And the very next thing is he is exalted to the throne uh, above all. So God's path to exaltation, of course, you put that right in with Christ taught, he who wants to be first needs to be last. And he who is last shall be first. He who exalts himself will be, and exactly, it will be abased. That's exactly right. And so we find the contradictory principles exposed here. And so Isaiah 14 gives us insight into the real issues, either the kingdom of love, self-sacrificing love, giving ourselves to promote others, which is at war with Satan's principle of self-promotion based on misunderstanding about the divine character. Do we have problems with people in our community today misunderstanding the divine character? Has anybody heard any recently? Yes. Yes. And we need to work and help promote the truth about the divine character through the evidences of Scripture. We're going to go through that today. Hopefully we'll get time to do that. And then also, Isaiah tells us not only in 14 that the controversy began in heaven, but Isaiah 60 tells us it spread to earth when it says, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness covers the people. And what darkness do you think that's talking about? Darkness about the character of God. Yes, and when Christ in John chapter 1 comes into the world, John 1 describes Christ as what? 
The light that lightens all men. Yes, exactly. See, our minds have been darkened by Satan's lies about God. And thus, the whole world is covered in misunderstanding and confusion about God. But Christ comes to remove the darkness. So, we've got three points that Isaiah gives us so far. One, religion without meaning, without reason, without understanding is meaningless. God doesn't like it. He makes him sick, it actually says in Isaiah 1, and he wants us to reason together. Two, um, that uh, the Messiah is coming to, to earth. God himself is going to become a human being. Three, the problem started in heaven before earth was created. We have a great controversy going on. Four, Isaiah 33, 14 and 15. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the eternal burnings? Who can dwell with the consuming fire? He who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion. That's the one in the fire, not the wicked. Isaiah gives us the truth about what hell is all about. That the eternal burnings and the consuming fire are God's very presence. Remember in Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. And hopefully we'll have time. We've got it in the notes. We'll try to come back to this point to expand it further. But Isaiah has got the truth that the righteous live eternally in God's life-giving glory, the eternal fire that never goes out, where the wicked, of course, will be consumed by it. It, ter- it scares them. It terrorizes them. It terrifies them. We'll see if we can explore the reason for that later. So, and the fifth major point, Isaiah, when Christ comes, and this is a big one, when Christ comes, he comes to take our condition our sickness, our sinfulness, our bent and twisted state, our terminal condition upon himself in order to heal it, in order to cure it. And not only that, when he comes to do it, Isaiah tells us we're going to misunderstand and we're going to think that God punished his son in our place. Now notice this, Isaiah 53. 53 verse 4. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Notice Isaiah is saying, he came to take our condition, he came to take our sickness, our afflictions, yet we would consider that God was doing this to him. We would think. The Bible says, all the while we thought that his suffering was punishment sent by God. Here it is. So well stated, good news translation, all the while we thought the punishment he was under was inflicted by his father. I tell you, there are preachers in this community teaching this very thing, that God punished his son on the cross. Isaiah said it'd be a misunderstanding. We would misunderstand the truth. Pretty powerful stuff. Isaiah, man, I'm telling you, the book of Isaiah is awesome. We've got all this good stuff in here. And then Isaiah 61.6, it says, the Spirit, Jesus, of course, quoted this when he was on earth. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is, is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice he is coming to set free, to heal, to restore, to recreate. And then the sixth major point of Isaiah, we've got six points here. The Sabbath, as God actually intended it, and for eternity. Notice this and catch the truth about the Sabbath versus the lies about the Sabbath, the how Sabbath is to be experienced, the abuse of the Sabbath. Notice the key central issue as I read this to you out of Isaiah 58, starting in verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking out of words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. And then the verse in 66 talks about, you know, as the new heavens and the new earth make before me will endure, so from one new moon to the Sabbath people will come and rejoice before me. But what's the key there in the 58th verse about what real Sabbath observance is about versus what the Jews were doing in Christ's day? Joy. Delight. Delight, we must enjoy the Sabbath, so it can't be a burden, it can't be a works, it can't be all the rules we have to keep, but more than that. It's not doing as you please. Did you hear that? Notice, what are the two central issues in the war between Christ and Satan? What are the two methods of principles? Self and other giving. Selfishness, Satan's government, other-centered love, God's government. Notice, it says... If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day and call the Sabbath the delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please, in other words, not being selfish, not being self-centered, not always putting self at the center. See, if you put self at the center, it doesn't matter which day of the week you observe, does it? No. No. And those who put Christ on the cross wanted him down by sunset. Why? You want to keep the Sabbath. 
So they could keep the Sabbath. Did they have the wrong day of the week? No. According to the scripture? Were they Sabbath observers? Yes. Yes. But as God would have them observe, were they actually Sabbath breakers? Yes. 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 You notice because they were keeping a rule on a right period of time, but their hearts were not recreated to love others more than themselves. And this is the real issue about Sabbath observance, that we have the law written in the heart that we will present the truth in love and leave others free. That's what Sabbath observance is all about. It's a character transformation, not an observance of works that we can do. That's what it's about. Does that make sense to everyone? So Isaiah's got that issue right as well. And of course it will endure forever because through all eternity we will reflect back on what transpired on this earth and the evidences God has given. And that's part of what the Sabbath is as well. The day and time of reflection. The freedom that we have with him. So that's the sixth major point. Seventh major point of Isaiah. That God wants to save all people no matter who your ancestors were. It doesn't matter your genetics. It doesn't matter your DNA. It doesn't matter who you're descended from. God wants to save all people. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. Now, notice these words. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. What do you think that's referring to? He'll destroy the shroud that covers all peoples, the sheet that enfolds all nations. So the shroud is shrouding what? Our minds are being shrouded from the truth by what you say, the lies. Is there anywhere else in Bible symbolism that we have this shroud being destroyed? Notice that. The veil in the temple. The veil in the temple. When Christ died on the cross, God rent the veil. And the veil, if you remember, had angels sewn on it. And the priests, the daily priests, with their robes of white, representing the converted peoples, with their robes of righteousness, going into the holy place, wanting to look back and see God more clearly, wanting to see the Shekinah presence, couldn't see it because there was this obstruction in the way. This veil was in the way, and this veil had angels on it. Satan and his minions are what kind of beings? Angels. Angels, and they obstruct our view of God. But when Christ died, he destroys him, Hebrews 2.14, he took upon himself... Uh, human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And at Christ's death, he destroys him and the veil is rent. And those priests can look straight back now and see clearly again, God, the shroud is destroyed. The sheet is ripped loose. This veil is rent. We can see God clearly again because of what Christ has done. Isn't this cool? Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, Isaiah is awesome, man. Isaiah's got a ton of stuff. So that's a seventh major point that God wants to save all peoples. And then the eighth major point, what are we all looking forward to? New heaven. New heaven and new earth. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace from his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I mean, do you see? If you just had the book of Isaiah alone, you've got pretty much everything you need to find salvation. It's got it all. It's got the reasoning, truth versus rhetoric. It's got the promised Messiah. It's got the truth about the Sabbath. It's got the great controversy picture, the truth about hell, that God doesn't inflict punishment, but it's a natural consequence that occurs. That Christ takes our condition in order to cure it, but we would misunderstand and believe God inflicted it upon his son. Uh, it's got all these different truths. Yes? I heard a minister one time say that he believed that Isaiah was God's intent to reprogram Jesus into knowing his mission. It was Jesus giving Isaiah in order that when he came back again, he could read it and, prog- and re- remember the, his purpose and his point and the whole thing. It was a, a sort of a meant initially for Jesus to reorient himself as a human to his mission, his whole life, and the whole purpose. Any thoughts about that? He did quote Isaiah quite a bit. He sure did. It's, it's interesting where the eunuch was reading, and he was reading the book of Isaiah. That's right. And said, Philip explained all things to him. And that was his only contact, you might say, with a Christian. Then he went back to his country and started from there. We have a group of Christians in Ethiopia. That's right. 
Not only that, it seems the book of Isaiah is one of the Old Testament books that we have found, remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? Completely intact, that predate the time of Christ. Completely intact, and it's exactly as we have it today. So God preserved an original copy of the book of Isaiah that we can be sure. When people ask, well, how do you know the Bible really is as it says? We have a copy that predates the life of Christ that is exactly as it's been today. So we have an accurate copy. I don't think that's an accident either. I think that it's there for a reason, because it really does have the entire great Conover's perspective in the book of Isaiah. In the Sabbath's lesson, the first paragraph, somebody read that first paragraph for us. It starts, essential part. A central part of Isaiah's mission was to reform the southern kingdom of Judah. He spoke out against sin and corruption and the nation's rebellion against God. But Isaiah's mission extended further than just reform within Judah. He envisioned a day when Judah's mission would be to represent God to the world. Judah was not to remain inward-looking. It had a mission to all other nations. Isaiah quotes God as saying, I will keep you and will make you into a covenant for people and a light for the Gentiles. If you notice there in the very beginning, he says that he came to speak out against sin and corruption. Who was he speaking to? Was he speaking to the uh, pagan peoples of the world? No, he was speaking to God's people. Notice, he was speaking out against sin and corruption in the church. And what was the response of the church, the people? Today, what happens if someone speaks out against sin and corruption in the church? They get fired. How about if they're not actually employed by the church? They get shunned. Well, let's, let's take this thought. First off, let's do a little definition here. What is sin? If we're going to speak out against it. We need to know what it is. What is it? At its root, at its base element, what is the base issue that all sin arose from? Selfishness arose from something else. Pardon? Mistrust of God rose from something else. A, a broken relationship with God. Lies about God. Wasn't it the lies that were told that resulted in the mistrust once they were believed? If you believe the lie, even though it's not true, if you believe it, does something inside of you change? Notice, lies believed break that circle of love and trust. And so it was the lies told by Lucifer about God, which is the root to all sin, the lies about God. That is the root. Every other sin. And what happens is Satan doesn't want you to see the root. He wants you to focus on these external things, these behaviors, all this other stuff. And so preachers will talk out against drugs and against alcohol and against sex and against all this stuff, but they won't get to the root. And the root to the whole controversy is the nature and character of God himself. That is the root. That's why Christ said in John 17, Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known. Destroying the root destroys the branches. When you want to kill a plant, if you just keep cutting the branches, they keep growing back, don't they? But if you kill the roots, the plant dies. God wants to destroy the root, which is the lies about him in our hearts and minds. Destroying those lies will change the character and transform us so that we bring forth fruits of righteousness. And so when we talk about speaking out against sin in the church, the greatest sin that anyone can do would be what? Tell lies about God. Do we see that going on in our church? Yes, we do. And, it's, and let me tell you, there's a shaking going on. There's a shaking going on right now at this time where the peoples are being shaken into two groups. Those who see God more clearly as revealed in Christ and those who prefer Satan's perspective of God, a God who is a punisher, a God who must inflict penalties, a God who will torture. And you don't have to be confused by this. As we go through class today, I'm going to give you evidence, testable evidence, that you actually can measure to know which side is true. God will never leave it up to just, well, he said, she said. Satan's position is, he said, she said, there's no evidence, just go by whoever is the most passionate speaker. No, no, God gives evidence to demonstrate the truth of it. We're going to go through some of that evidence here in a minute. But notice, the number one lie, the root to it all, are lies about God himself. And by the way, notice also that Judah's mission, or Israel's mission, was to show God's true character to the world, to be a witness to the world. And notice in Revelation uh, chapter 14, verse 7, first angel's message, and it said in a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. What is glory? What is God's glory? His character. His character. 
how do we then give him glory? By cooperating with him. Exactly. So he reproduces his character in us and we shine his character to the world. That's how we glorify him at the hour that he is judging or the hour that he is being judged. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. See, a lot of people have this other view that God sits up there and he's meeting out judgment against us. Meeting out judgment. Meeting out judgment. No, no, no. Paul says in Romans, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. And, and let me ask you this question. Would it be true that as you judge God, you judge him someone trustworthy? The lies that were told about your spouse, there's evidence that's come in and you've made a decision to either believe the lies or to believe the evidence. Will that then determine what happens to that relationship? Mm-hmm. When the lies that have been told about Satan, Christ has come to give the evidence to, to refute those lies, we now have to make a judgment, don't we? Are we going to believe Satan's lies or are we going to believe the truth as revealed in Jesus? And as we make that judgment to trust God or to not trust God, will that determine what happens to us? Absolutely. Yes. See, a lot of people have it as an arbitrary decision on God's part. You do enough good things, they'll outweigh the bad things, and, and if you ask forgiveness and get the blood applied, then, then God has a, has a requirement to stamp pardon next to your name, and he'll judge you righteous. No, no, no. That is not the process. That is a deception. It's rhetoric. Or many are called, few are chosen by God. Yeah, many are called, few are chosen. Is God the one up there choosing who's saved? Does anyone here think that God is the one who's going to choose who is saved? He desires all. We just, didn't we just read that from Isaiah? He wants all peoples to be saved. So who makes the choice whether you're saved or you're lost? We want the truth. We make that choice for our own salvation, don't we? And by the way, who gave us the right to make that choice? God gave us the right. So we're, it's not that we have some inherent ability to say, God, I'm going to make this choice whether you like it or not. No, it's God has granted us the privilege of making the choice. But it's our choice to make whether we're saved or lost. He doesn't make that choice for us. And now listen to this text out of Ezekiel. I won't read the whole thing, but it says in Ezekiel 36, basically after berating the people for misrepresenting God, it says, And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares a sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, bring you back to your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. Notice, not cleanse the record books in heaven from the records of sin. I will cleanse you from all your iniquities and all your impurities, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Notice God's plan is to actually change us to be like him. And then we will give glory to him at the hour that people are trying to decide whether he's someone they can trust or not. That's what he's calling us to do as a people. Okay. Uh, let's go to Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the third paragraph that begins, or in response to his. In response to his vision of the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then the bottom green section. Somebody read that bottom green section. What was it about seeing God that caused this reaction? How does this help us understand why Jesus came in human flesh to reveal us what God is really like? The question is, okay, you you see Isaiah's reaction. He's a man who is favored of God. He's a man who God will use and trust. He's a man who God comes and reveals himself to, yet Isaiah's reaction is to fall down undone. And then the quarterly points out that, that Christ did not come with his unveiled splendor, his unveiled glory that he had with the Father. He came cloaked in human flesh. Why did he not come? with unveiled splendor that he had in heaven. You mean he would have been angry and wrathful and vengeful and inflicting punishment against people. Is that what you're saying? No, it's glory. You couldn't stand his glory. You couldn't stand look on his glory. So are you saying that, that if Christ would have come to sinful humanity who had not been healed, who had not been restored, who had not had their hearts and characters changed, as we read in Ezekiel, that it would have been impossible for us to actually stand in his presence? That God, Christ would have been just as loving, just as kind, just as forgiving, just as gracious, but we still would have died? Yeah. Well, then why do we think that God has to inflict penalties at the wicked on the end? Why do we think that it's something other than a natural consequence? We've been lied to. We have been lied to. And those lies are still being told very powerfully in our own church. Yes? I think it reveals that what we would like to do if we were God. 
I think that many people have that kind of heart, that selfish, mean-spirited heart, that they would want to do that. But let's, let's go through the evidence now, because I want you to, to be able to tell, and I want you to learn how to tell the difference between rhetoric and evidence. Rhetoric and evidence. Rhetoric is words. Evidence is historical fact or testable principles. That's what evidence is, historical fact or testable principles. In uh, 1 John 4, 8, the Bible says, God is love. That text all by itself, let's for a moment assume that's all the Bible we have, that one text. There is no other Bible, that one text, God is love. That text alone, is that text evidence or is that text rhetoric? Rhetoric. Proclamation, claim. Could you know who God is with that text alone? No. Could you know what love is with that text alone? No. No. That text alone, without the Bible to inform us, to enlighten us, is meaningless. Now, the life of Christ, the historical accounts of his life, is that rhetoric or is that evidence? Evidence. That's evidence. You see the difference between rhetoric and evidence. Okay? It's important to notice this difference because most of the problems we have in theology are theologians who read the Bible and they'll find the rhetoric statements, the proclamation statements, the word statements, and they make their theology based on it, but they ignore the evidence of what transpired. Classic example in Ezekiel, when God warns the people of Israel in Jerusalem, saying, I will destroy the city, I will burn the fire, I will heat the wood, I will flame up the flames, you will not be until you've seen the full force of my anger, the Lord has spoken. And they say, see, God will punish. That's a rhetoric statement. But they don't ask the question, okay, what actually happened? And what actually happened was the Babylonians came and the Babylonians destroyed the city. Not God. That's historic facts. Well, then why did God speak this way? And I'm not going to tell you the answer because I've told you this answer a hundred times. Somebody in the class, tell me, why did God speak this way if he wasn't going to do it? Because they were stubborn as a mule. Okay, Hosea 4.16. The children of Israel are stubborn, stubborn like a mule. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Hosea 4.16. So God's explaining, I have to talk tough because they don't listen. But why do you have to talk tough? Parents, you ever talk tough to your kids? You love them. They won't listen. Because they won't listen. You ever... Destruction. They're bent on destruction. They're heading to a path that's going to end in self-destruction. And so if you have a child, you know, riding a bike... Heading towards the intersection, you see a car coming the other way, but there's trees and stuff and shrubbery, so the child can't see the car's coming. You're on the other side, you can see it coming, and you tell your child to stop. But your child's stubborn like a mule and doesn't listen. Do you go, well, I told him, it's up to him. Or do you start hollering? Do you threaten? If you don't stop, I'll take that bike away. If you don't stop, I'll, I'll spank you. Will, you. will you do that? Yes. And if your child doesn't stop and gets hit by the car, you then pull out your belt and spank them. You see, theologians who have this idea of God inflicting punishment have not learned how to reason and think through the evidence. And the evidence God has given us is He loves us so much He will use strong words. Okay? Put it together with the third angel's message, a classic statement used, rhetoric. Notice, the third angel's message is rhetoric. It is not direct evidence. But the third angel's message... Uh, Revelation chapter 14. Somebody read the third angel's message in Revelation 14 for us. Look at the powerful words God is speaking here. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever, and there is no rest, day or night, for those who worship beasts in his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Okay, and those who take the rhetoric positions and don't look at the evidence will take that and say, See, God will punish you, and it will be severe. But they don't put the Bible together with evidence. And the evidence from Isaiah 13, we just read, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with a consuming fire and eternal burning? He who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion is the one who is in the fire. Now that's kind of confusing at first unless you start looking at Bible evidence. When Moses talked to God at the bush, how was the bush described? Did the bush get consumed? No. When God came down to Sinai with the children of Israel, how was Sinai described? Lightning and fire. And it actually uses the word a consuming fire. 
when Solomon's temple was dedicated, the priests could not enter it. Why? Glory. The brightness of God's glory. Did the, did the temple burn down? No. Interesting, isn't it? In Ezekiel chapter 28, it says Lucifer used to walk among the fiery stones of God's presence. In Daniel chapter 7, it says that uh, they saw, saw God's throne, and from it was issuing forth rivers of fire, and 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands stood in this fire before him. Were they being tortured? No. Were they suffering? No. Interesting. Well, even Isaiah, he was touched with the coal. From the fire. From the fire. Did it burn his lips? It did not. There's another good example. It cleansed him. It cleansed him. Christ... Uh, in the human body that was subject to death because it died on the cross at transfiguration was bathed in this fire it says his face was like the sun did he get hurt by this fire no it says in revelation chapter uh, 22 that in the new heaven and new earth there will be no need for the sun to light the place for god's presence will be his light you see the lie that satan has foisted upon us that that shroud that covers our mind is the place you don't want to be the place you don't want to go is a place of eternal burning and consuming fire and that place is god's very presence the righteous are transformed by it. The wicked are in agony will come to him and destroyed by it. We'll come to a reason why. But look at Moses. After 40 days in God's presence, he comes down off the mountain. And what's his face doing? Did he, did he have third-degree burns? No. Did his whiskers even get burned off? No. Think about that. How close can I get to somebody with a full beard with a, with a, with a match? How close can I get? No. Not too close, can I? Poof, up it goes. Okay? His whiskers didn't even burn off. There's something strange about this fire. What did the children of Israel do, though, when they saw Moses' face? What did they experience? Fear. Suffering, agony, torment. It caused them suffering. Why? Guilt. Guilt. You see? We come to the truth about what this fire is. Now, Thessalonians tells us that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Now, this is okay. It's getting intriguing. Now, okay, I got a fire that Moses walks in. His face isn't burned. Doesn't burn up bushes. Doesn't burn up buildings. But yet, the same fire destroys the wicked. Now, is this a strange fire or what? Yeah. Well, what is this fire coming to destroy? Sin. To, to sin, wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. So, the question these notes are made out of paper. My Bible's made out of leather and, and paper. What, what is sin made out of? Because the fire is coming to burn up sin, not coming to burn up physical material substance. So what is it made out of? I heard it. Ideas. Ideas, thoughts, attitude. And at its root element, what are the root elements to sin? Lies about God resulting in selfishness. Now, in your mind, what is it that if you have a lie in your mind, will come in and totally destroy that lie. Truth. Truth. And the Holy Spirit's called the spirit of? Truth. Truth. And if you're a selfish person, if this comes into your heart, what is it to destroy selfishness? Love. God is love. And so when the Spirit comes, He's the Spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, the Spirit fell and they saw tongues of? Fire. Oh, wow. Is that interesting? But no one got hurt. Now come back to the Revelation text. The fire that burns and the fire that consumes and the fire that transforms righteous and the fire that tortures the wicked is the fire of God's life-giving glory. What's it say? Right in the text that was read that they suffer in this torment where? In the presence of angels and the Lamb. In the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. This is where it takes place, in God's very presence. Wow. You notice that we have the evidence that the bush didn't burn. We have the evidence that Moses' face didn't burn. We have the evidence that the temple didn't burn. We have the evidence that Christ didn't get hurt in his human body when this glory was upon him. We have the evidence that the children couldn't stand the face. These are historical accounts of evidences of things happening, not declarative statements or symbolic descriptions. And see, what happens is people will take these symbolic descriptions in Revelation and not enlighten those symbols with the evidence of Scripture of what actually happened, and thus they draw all this distorted theology. But I want to give you some further evidence, some testable evidence, and that is one of God's laws, the law of liberty. 
the law of liberty. And we've talked about it before. I won't go into great detail, but I will tell you this much. Anybody get to see the Good News Tour last week from Loma Linda on the Loma Linda Broadcasting Network? For those who didn't get a chance, Dean has already got it on our website. So you can go to our website, comeandreason.com. You have a video to watch or you can get the audio. See, Satan took this world by deception, by telling lies about God, clouding the minds. Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Upon the rock Jesus Christ, upon the truth of who he is, revealing the truth about God, Satan's lies cannot stand up against the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. So we can set minds free. So I challenge you, listen to the talk, and if you value it, make copies of it and distribute it on CD to everybody you know in this community, especially in this church. Distribute it and tell them to think about it because they're going to learn what I'm about to tell you right now. The law of liberty is a testable law. It has three predictable, testable consequences. One, love is always damaged and will eventually be destroyed. A desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. And if you voluntarily choose to stay in a situation where freedoms are being violated, over time your individuality, your ability to think and reason are destroyed and you become an empty shadow person. And conversely, you can test it the other way. If you're in a relationship where freedoms have been violated, start breathing freedom in. Start promoting the welfare, the autonomy, the independence, supporting the dreams and aspirations of your significant other and watch love grow in that relationship. It's testable that way too. Test it. Because once you test it, we have something predictable, reliable, testable. We have a standard against which we can test our theories. Because God is love and he will never violate his own law that emanates from his character, the law of love, which requires freedom. Because love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Amen. Does everybody agree with that? Amen. Amen. That means you can't go to your spouse and say, hey, sweetheart, look at all the things I've done. I've cleaned the house for you for months now. I've gone shopping. I give you a back rub every night. I buy you flowers. I do all this stuff for you. And all I want is your love. But if you don't love me, I will pour gasoline over you and burn you. Okay? Well, that's what many Christians have God say. God, I love you. All I want is your love. I've sent my spirit. I've sent the, the rain and the sunshine. I've sent my angels to watch over and protect all of me. i sent my son to die for you. But if you refuse to love me, I will burn you in hell until you die. Wait a minute. Can God possibly be saying that to us? No. It is a violation of the law of liberty. And it will destroy love and incite rebellion. And those who worship a God... See, if we're in human relationships, and I give patient examples in the talk, human relationships in which a spouse is dominating and controlling the other one, love is destroyed, a desire to rebel is instilled, but if you don't get yourself out, over the course of time, you lose your individuality, your ability to think, and you become a non-thinking shadow person who just goes along with what the other person says. Same thing happens if you worship a God like this. If you worship a God who is dictatorial, who violates liberties, who coerces, who threatens, then... Love will be destroyed. And what did Jesus say will happen at the end of time? The love of many will... Why is it growing cold? Because they're worshiping a God who violates liberty. Paul says that very thing. And in Timothy, he says, not only will love wax cold, but they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Because they worship a God who will use power to inflict and damage and destroy. So they have godliness, but they worship the wrong God. Love is being destroyed. And then not only is love being destroyed when they choose to voluntarily stay worshiping God like that, then over time, individuality is destroyed. They lose the ability to think and to reason. They become non-thinking shadow people following this arbitrary dictatorial God. And they, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We don't ask any questions. We take that on faith. We have rituals without meaning. We'll blow up abortion clinics, shoot abortion doctors, blow up buildings in the name of our God. We'll do lots of things. And we will criticize those people who practice religion differently than us because the rules say you have to do it this way. Non-thinking, unreasoning religion. Or, third consequence, we rebel entirely, reject the idea of God because we can't accept a God like this, and we become a postmodern agnostic atheist rejecting God altogether. This is what Satan wants. He wants to destroy your ability to love, destroy your ability to think, or destroy your entire belief in God altogether. And the best way to do that is to get Christians to teach that God will use his power to punish and destroy. And pastors who teach that are perpetrating Satan's lies about God. And I will say that and back it up. Amen. We have a, uh, a standard now which we can test. This tests the law of liberty. It is evidence. It's testable. You don't have to believe me on it. Okay? Does everybody follow me on this? Amen. This is different than rhetoric. Those people will get up. But further, one of the founders of our church supports me in this. And I want to read to you a couple of quotes from one of the founders of our church in this process. 
to let you know that I'm just not out there on my own. And all this is in the notes, by the way, for those who, who want the notes. First selected message is 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Do you think she understood the divine character? Yes. Because I've heard recently that people who have this position don't understand the divine character. I think she understood the divine character. I do. Here's one Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Now get this. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. The Tsar of Ages 761. Satan's position from the beginning is God is a punisher. God inflicts punishment. Hmm. How do we know that this position is correct? In other words, that this is Satan's position, not God's position. God does not inflict punishment. How do we know? The law of liberty. It's testable. It's a standard. We can compare it. We don't have to wonder. We have evidence to prove this. Not only that, on the cross, Christ had the power to stop it, did he? No, he didn't stop it. He won't use his power to stop us even when we're killing him. He won't do that. Desire of Ages 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only, only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests on goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentations of these principles are the means used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. Do we see a different picture here? Satan has described to God, this is uh, Councils to Teachers 27, Satan has described to God all the evils to which flesh is heir. He has represented him as a God who delights in the suffering of his creatures, who is revengeful and is implacable. It is Satan who originated the doctrine of eternal hell or torment as the punishment for sin because in this way he could lead men to infidelity and rebellion. Remember, law of liberty violated. The natural consequence is rebellion. But not only, not only that, listen, listen to this. Distract souls and dethrone human reason. Become shadow people non-thinking people who can no longer think for themselves. This is exactly what she's saying. It's a violation of the law of liberty. It destroys individuality, destroys love, it destroys the ability to think and reason. When we worship a God like this, it is Satan's goal to do that to us. And we as a people have to really learn how to think and weigh the evidences for ourselves. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet. Take these truths and evidences forward in love, ultimately leaving people free. Notice the beast system in the end. Whatever you think it is, practices the coercive principle. No one can buy or sell, say him, who has the mark of the beast. We'll use power over to coerce and threaten, whereas God's principles are not of this order. So, let us wrap up with questions, because I'm sure I threw a lot out there for us to discuss. Go ahead. I was a little bit surprised, in a way. I was reading Genesis last night, and uh, Genesis 2, uh, 16, the Lord God commanded the man, talking about Adam in the garden, meaning you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But, if I, but uh, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. But to start a whole, a whole conversation with man, he starts off with saying, you're free. Yep. You're free. But notice he didn't say in the day you eat of it, I'll have to kill you in order to be just. He didn't say that, did he? You will die. The wages of sin is? The uh, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth? Notice the, that's James chapter 1. Notice it never says that God is the source of death. Satan wants people to be afraid of God rather than afraid of sin, which destroys our character and separates us from God. It is the evil in us that results in our eternal loss if it's not healed, not, not reconciled, not, not restored into godliness. If God doesn't write his law of love back in our heart, God doesn't inflict this upon us. It's our own condition that results in it. Yes? A, a rhetoric statement that's often heard with this controversy is that God's love has to, and his justice, you know, as if they're two different parts of him. 
that's something that's often used as a... Have you all heard that? God is not only loving, He is also... Just. Do you understand that this is an artifact of the English language coming from Latin-based language? Okay? In the original Greek, there is one word for righteousness and justice. It would be like saying, God is not only loving, he's also righteous. Oh, cool. I'm glad, because righteousness and love are the same thing. Love and righteousness are exactly the same thing. And so in the Greek, there is one word, dikaio dikaiosune, which means love, because to do what's right is to do what's just. To do the just thing is to do the right thing. The righteous thing is the justice thing. That's, that's how it is. But another way for those who like the legal language of things, and, and, and the problem comes down to understanding God's law. Most people who take the rhetoric statements view God's law like lawyers enacting and legislating and passing arbitrary and dictated and imposed laws that therefore require imposed penalties to be enforced. That is not God's law. God's laws are natural laws. Life is actually designed and predicated and built upon them, and violations have natural results. For instance, if we look at the physical level, we'll go to the spiritual in a moment, physical level, a natural law, law of respiration. We have to breathe in order to be healthy. If you violate that law in multiple ways, cigarette smoke, or more uh, acutely, tie a plastic bag over your head, God will not send an angel down to punish you for those things. He doesn't have to inflict punishment upon you, does he? There is a natural consequence for breaking the law of respiration, and that is either lung cancer and ultimate death, or asphyxiation and death. Okay? Likewise, the law upon which life is designed in the universe to run is the law of love. It is the principle of outward-moving, other-centered giving. Everything God designs works on this law. Breaches of this law naturally result in death. God doesn't have to inflict penalties any more than you would have to inflict a penalty on your child for smoking cigarettes. You don't have to do it. It's a natural consequence. However, if the child's really little and they smoke a cigarette, you might, as an intermediary, because they can't comprehend the long-term consequences, step in and discipline with a consequence, and then the child might think, grow up thinking, wow, you never want to stoke because, boy, when you smoke, your bottom starts hurting really bad. <laughs> okay? I mean, if they never grew up, they might think that. And a lot of Christians have grown up thinking, boy, you never want to disobey God because when you do, He really gets you. Well, he does that in love to help us understand until we're old enough to comprehend. But justice, from the lawyer side then, justice. In order to have justice in any society, isn't it true that the justice is predicated upon the prevailing law in that society? In our society, it's the Constitution that we measure justice by. Isn't that right? What is the prevailing law in God's government? Love. Love. Okay? So when you talk about God's justice, it's always what's loving. Loving is just. Nothing else. And so just is never something other than love. Never in God's government. All right, we're, we're out of time. I encourage you to go home. Think these things out. Try to really get your mind around the idea of evidence versus rhetoric and proclamations. And, and please, if you can, take those CDs. Make some. Share them with people in our church. Because I'm telling you, there's a bunch of people in our church who don't know how to think through evidence versus rhetoric. And they're being taken along, hook, line, and sinker, by powerful preachers who give lots of rhetoric with no evidence. Notice in some of the recent uh, sermons in our community that have been given. Rhetoric, rhetoric, rhetoric. Even powerfully, no evidence at all to back it up. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have asked us in the book of Isaiah to come and reason with you. And you have shown us there's a controversy over your nature, your character, that you have come to earth in human form that we could see to reveal the truth, to take our infirmities, to heal and to restore, that you have sent your spirit to open our minds and enlighten us. And now, Lord, we pray that you will allow us to discern the difference between the evidences and the, and the lies about you, that the veil, the shroud that is covering our minds can be pulled back, that we can see you as you really are, and that we can go forth and present these truths and love to others to set more minds free so that the gates of hell will not stand against the truth as revealed in you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.